Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Welcome to the third episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and this is the story of the history of football in England and Wales, from the origins of the game in the 19th century and before, through to the modern day. In the last episode of this series, we looked at the emergence of professionalism, and the almost immediate arrival of the Football League to the heart of the game after its introduction. By 1900, football at least resembled the game that we know today. Its laws may still have been very different, but the cultural template that we still follow today was already well formed. But something was around the corner that would change the world forever. And just as the world would arrive in agony through four years of conflict, so would football. This is the story of football in England and Wales from 1900 to 1918. By the time the fighting ended, it was almost impossible to count the dead. It was definitely more than 16 million from the fighting alone, possibly many more. The number killed by genocides and the Spanish flu may have topped 100 million people. At the turn of the century, the United Kingdom was more preoccupied with the Boer War, and the event that left its longest cultural mark on football took place just three years into the new century. On the 23rd of January 1900, British troops under the command of Lieutenant General Sir Charles Warren attempted to relieve Ladysmith, a territory under British colonial rule which had been under siege for several months, by crossing the Tugela River. When the British army reached a large hill called Spion Cop, they came across two huge problems. Firstly, the Boers were on an even higher hill and firing at them. Secondly, the ground was such that they couldn't dig themselves into trenches. By the time the fighting had finished, 
243 British and 68 Boer soldiers were dead. But Ladysmith hadn't been relieved. Pride and joy, this lad. In comes Lawrenson! Cop this, cop that, screen the back pages. But why? It's a sacred place. The ashes of dozens of men have been sprinkled. The place is a, it's a shrine, really. Small word, towering tale. In the first days of the 20th century, the British Empire was at war in South Africa. The largest British army since Agincourt was suffering defeat after defeat at the hands of the Boers. A band of farmers descended from the original Dutch settlers. The Boers claimed this land as their own. Gold made it worth fighting for. In the town of Ladysmith, 13,000 British troops were under siege. A force, mostly made up of Lancashire regiments, was sent to relieve the town. Their way was blocked by 10,000 Boers and a 1,500-foot terraced hill. Spian Kop, or Spy Hill in Dutch, was the key to unlocking Ladysmith. Many of these British soldiers were rescued from unemployment and poverty, recruited from cities and towns like Liverpool and my hometown, Preston. Among the troops were the victorious footballers of the South Lancashire Regiment, led by their captain, Colour Sergeant John Nolan. Just months before, they had brought the Army Football Cup back to their barracks near Preston North End's Deepdale Ground. Perhaps surprisingly, the first reference to a large terrace at a football ground being referred to as a spying cop came not at Anfield, but at the Manor Ground, then the home of Woolwich Arsenal in 1904. When Liverpool opened a new embankment in 1906, the name was applied there too. It stuck at Anfield, but scores of other clubs also had their own cops, and some retain the name to this day. That new embankment at Liverpool was built in the summer after the club lifted their second league title of the decade. Their first to come in 1901, and even by this point, it was clear that there were costs to the growth of the game, as well as benefits. One blight of the modern game, which has been with us since not long after the formation of professional football, had been hooliganism. Reports of significant violence at football matches can be found as far back as the early 1880s, with groups of what were then known as roughs, involved in levels of disorder that would look extreme even to our jaded eyes. Fights at railway stations, attacking rival club supporters, players and referees, all occurred. And it has been suggested that much of this was an extension of the culture of mob football, which had been played for hundreds of years prior to the codification of association football. The initial response of the game's governing bodies was wrapped in the prejudices of the time. The Football League introduced a minimum entrance fee of sevenpence, in the hope that the poorest, who were assumed to be causing the trouble, would be priced out of the game altogether. There is no evidence to suggest that this idea was based on any form of research whatsoever. What was notable about hooliganism 
was that its rate tended to correlate closely with levels of violent crime outside of football. When the game returned in 1919, after four years away, the hooliganism didn't seem to return with it, and it only started making newspaper headlines again in the late 1950s. By the end of the 1960s, the rate of reported incidences of it had doubled in a decade, and from there on, it became self-perpetuating. On the administrative and playing side of things, the scent of impropriety continued to hang heavy in the air. In 1898, Stoke City and Burnley intentionally drew in that year's final test match, so as to ensure that they were both promoted to the first division the following season, as was correct under the rules of the game at that time. In response, the Football League expanded the divisions to 18 teams that year, thus permitting the intended victims of the fix, Newcastle United and Blackburn Rovers, to remain in the first division as well. The test match system was abandoned and replaced with automatic promotion and relegation the following year. Two years later came the first recorded case of attempted match-fixing. Going into their final match of the season against Nottingham Forest, Burnley needed to win to stand any chance of avoiding relegation from the first division. Goalkeeper Jack Hillman attempted to bribe the Forest players, offering them £2 each to take it easy. At half-time he increased this offer to £5, but Burnley lost 4-0 and were relegated. After the game, the Forest Secretary wrote to the FA to complain about Hillman's behaviour that day, and Hillman was summoned to a joint FA Football League Commission in Manchester. Hillman's defence was that the whole thing had been a joke, apparently inspired by suspicions surrounding Nottingham Forest's 8-0 defeat against West Bromwich Albion a few weeks previously. Hillman claimed that he was only asking for a similar favour. The authorities, however, failed to see the funny side of this and banned him for a season for his actions. The influence of money was increasingly spreading throughout the game and another milestone was reached in 1905 with the first £1,000 transfer fee. Alf Common had a busy time of things over the years between 1902 and 1905. In 1902, he scored the winning goal in the FA Cup final for Sheffield United, and in the summer of 1905, Sunderland were persuaded to pay a then record fee of £520 to take him to Roker Park. His stay with the club would be brief. After just 20 matches, he was on the move again, this time to Middlesbrough, and this time for £1,000. Predictably, there was some consternation in the press at this landmark being reached. One journalist described the transfer of Common as flesh and blood for sale, whilst another sports writer wrote, We are tempted to wonder whether association football players will eventually rival thoroughbred yearling racehorses in the market. Common's goals would go a long way towards keeping Middlesbrough in the first division that season, though. If such transfer fees were making clubs rich, they weren't doing the same for the players. In September 1893, Derby County proposed that the Football League should impose a maximum wage of £4 per week. At the time, most players were only part-time 
and still had other jobs. They didn't receive as much as £4 a week, and therefore the matter didn't really concern them. However, a minority of players were so good that they were able to obtain as much as £10 a week. This proposal posed a serious threat to their income, so they unionised as the Association Footballers Union and was successful in talking the league out of introducing the maximum wage. The average wage of the Liverpool team that won the title in 1901 was £7 a week. They, however, had a nasty shock coming. That summer, the Football Association passed a rule at its AGM which set the maximum wage for professional footballers playing in the Football League at £4 per week and outlawed match bonuses. The £4 a week figure was double what a skilled tradesman received at this time. It was claimed at the time that this was an attempt to curb the spending power of the wealthier clubs. In 1907, Billy Meredith and several colleagues at Manchester United decided to form a new players' union. The first meeting was held on the 2nd of December 1907 at the Imperial Hotel Manchester. Also at the meeting were players from Manchester City, Newcastle United, Bradford City, West Bromwich Albion, Notts County, Sheffield United and Tottenham Hotspur. The main objective of the newly formed Association Football Players Union was to get an increase in the maximum wage. They got considerable support from within the game, but at its 1908 annual general meeting, the FA decided to reaffirm the maximum wage. However, they did raise the possibility of a bonus system being introduced, whereby players would receive up to 50% of club profits at the end of the season. The AFPU continued to have negotiations with the Football Association, but in April 1909, these came to an end without agreement. In June, the FA ordered that all players should leave the AFPU. They were warned that if they did not do so by the 1st of July that year, their registration as professionals would be cancelled. The AFPU responded by joining the General Federation of Trade Unions. Most players resigned from the union, but not all of them did. The whole of the Manchester United team refused to back down and were all suspended by their club as a result. The same thing happened to 17 Sunderland players who also refused to leave the AFPU. After several months of negotiation, though, the FA finally agreed that professional players could be members of the AFPU and the dispute came to an end. When the Manchester United team played in the first match of the season on the 1st of September 1909, they all wore AFPU armbands. However, it took six months for the players to receive their back wages and several were never picked to play for their country again. The maximum wage would stay in place for more than half a century. Arguably the biggest beneficiary of the maximum wage was the newly formed Southern League. When Woolwich Arsenal joined the Football League in 1891, they were the only members from south of Birmingham. But the game grew in the south, just as it had in the north, and the formation of the Southern League in 1894 offered competitive professional football in the south for the first time. By 1901, the Southern League had provided the FA Cup winners, whilst the Daily News described the league as, now without a doubt, second only in importance and the strength of its clubs to the Football League itself, 
with the exception of Woolwich Arsenal, who prefer to remain members of the second division of the Football League, all the best professional teams in the South are now enrolled in the ranks of the Southern League. And significantly, when the Football League introduced a maximum wage, the Southern League didn't. Lavish wages and signing on fees attracted a number of former professional players from the Football League. But what of the amateurs? With tension rising between amateur clubs and the Football Association due to the rise of professionalism, the Amateur Football Defence Council was formed in May 1906, following unanimous agreement at a meeting of around 100 clubs from the London metropolitan area. In September 1906, the AFDC warned the London FA that its clubs would be boycotting the London Senior Cup the following season. Later that month, the organisation was renamed the Amateur Football Defence Federation. Following the general meeting of the Football Association on the 31st of May 1907, it was decided by the Federation that in the best interest of amateur football, a new and separate organisation must be created. The inaugural meeting of the Amateur Football Association was held in the Crown Room of the Hoban Restaurant in London on the 7th of July 1907. It was a night for fiery rhetoric. It was stated that the foundation of the association wasn't in opposition to professionalism in sport, but instead to the fungus growth which had become attached to the machinery of football management. The Football Association responded by banning amateur players from playing for professional clubs, before a later resolution by the FA allowed any player who had played for his school, college or university team which was a member of the AFA, to play for a professional club as well. Furthermore, the FA asked the Scottish, Welsh and Irish football associations not to recognise the formation of the AFA. A number of amateur teams were forced to choose between one association or the other. Cambridge University pledged their allegiance to the AFA, and in response so did Oxford University. Both the Leicestershire and Essex Football Association were early supporters of the actions of the FA against the AFA, but the Army and Navy Football Associations took the question of which association to support by holding a vote, which resulted in both remaining in the Football Association. This schism lasted until 1914, when the FA agreed to allow the AFA to retain its amateur policy. The AFA, Oxford, Cambridge and the public schools would each nominate one member of the FA Council, with the AFA also represented on the National Team Selection Committee and Amateur Cup Committee. It wasn't all bad though. By 1915, the Football League had expanded to 40 clubs, with tens of thousands of people regularly attending matches. The laws of the game had been refined, removing the ability to use the hands or the arms at all and in doing so, football was given its USP. This was the only game exclusively for the feet. It required a different skill set, and it was one that anyone could try. Media attention also grew. Our oldest moving images of the professional game come from the very beginning of the 20th century, from the extraordinary work of the filmmakers Mitchell and Kenyon. Sagar Mitchell and James Kenyon founded the company in 1897, becoming self-publicising travelling cinematograph operators. 
They filmed numerous matches throughout the early years of the 20th century. Films taken during the day were shown on the same evening in fairground tents or local meeting halls, trailed with slogans such as, See yourselves as others see you. Mitchell and Kenyon always ensured that there were a lot of crowd shots in their filming, and watching their films back gives a real flavour of what the game at the time both looked and felt like. The actual football itself is best described as rudimentary. There's a lot of standing around, a lot of walking, and the goalkeeping, when seen, can be haphazard at best. But the grounds are packed, and it's all recognisable as a football match, in a way that wouldn't have been the case two decades earlier. Mitchell and Kenyon didn't just record sports either. They filmed topicals, which were filmed street scenes, parades, marches walking out on Sundays and fairgrounds. They filmed news when they were able to and are believed to have produced the first true crime reconstruction in the form of the arrest of Gowdy, the story of an embezzling bank employee, in 1901. They also recorded other sports, notably cricket and rugby league, and they even predated the slapstick films of Keystone Studios and Charlie Chaplin by more than a decade occasionally producing them from 1900 on. The Mitchell and Kenyon archive is an extraordinary document of a period of history in this country when ordinary people were seldom captured on film elsewhere. The volume of films produced by them tailed off after 1907, when Mitchell resumed his own business, and the last film of theirs that exists dates to 1913 and we're lucky to have a lot of these films as well. In 1994, during demolition work of a toy shop in Blackburn, two workmen clearing out the basement found three metal drums like milk churns, each of which contained hundreds of small spools of film. 800 original nitrate negatives had sat in these sealed barrels for more than 70 years. Subsequently acquired by the British Film Institute, the collection was the subject of a four-year-long restoration and research project involving the digitisation, dating and contextualisation of the films and revealing the key role of the travelling showman in the production of early film. This film is one of the most stunning in terms of quality in the entire Mitchell and Kenyon collection. It opens with a magnificent one-minute pan shot of the crowd at Bramall Lane where a sea of faces stare back towards the camera. No woman's present in the crowd, possibly as this was the standing area. The scene conjures up J.B. Priestley's description of the terraces as a place where you became a member of a new community, all brothers together for an hour and a half. Sheffield United were one of the leading teams in the first division and the action on the pitch features them in the Stripes versus Berry. Taken on the 6th of September 1902, we see Berry on the defence for much of the game. Sheffield United dominated the attack with the England captain Ernest Needham playing for the Blades. Berry were poor with the Athletic News reporting, I cannot say much of the Berry attack, it was like a patchwork quilt without the design. A brief glimpse of the John Street stand built in 1902. The first commission outside Glasgow of Archibald Leach the famous architect of football stadiums responsible for grounds like Highbury, Goodison Park and Villa Park, amongst others. The goalkeeper, incidentally, is one of the first celebrity footballers, the infamous William Fatty Fulks. When the declaration of war came, 
the football played on. This didn't pass without comment. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and W.G. Grace were amongst those who spoke out against football continuing as the nation marched off to war in August 1914. The issue was also raised in Parliament. As time went on, the atmosphere around it became increasingly shrill. The famous amateur footballer and cricketer C.B. Fry called for the abolition of football, demanding that all professional contracts be annulled and that no one below 40 years of age be allowed to attend matches. Newspapers occurred those who didn't sign up of effectively being German collaborators. Following discussions between the FA and the War Office in November 1914, though, the decision was made to set up a footballer's battalion. It was a PR exercise, designed to encourage enlistment and carry public favour. Players responded enthusiastically, if slowly, in no small part because only amateur players at first could sign up due to contract issues. 122 players from more than 60 current football league clubs were enlisted by the time that the recruitment drive ended the following spring. The England goalkeeper Frank Buckley was the first to sign up, and amongst those who signed up alongside him were the entire Clapton Orient team, whilst Heart of Midlovian's entire team did the same in Scotland. By the end of the drive, they had a full complement of 600 men in the 17th service of the Middlesex Regiment, though most who joined up to this battalion were not professional footballers themselves. Everybody knows what happened on Christmas Day 1914. French, German and British soldiers crossed trenches to exchange seasonal greetings and talk. In some areas, men from both sides ventured into no man's land on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to mingle and exchange food and souvenirs. There were joint burial ceremonies and prisoner swaps, while several meetings ended in carol singing. Fighting continued in some areas, while in others, the side settled on little more than arrangements to recover bodies. But arguably, the most enduring image of the entire day was of a football match played between British and German troops. To this day, though, the extent to which football matches would have even been possible has been a debatable matter amongst historians. Although the specifics of them may never be known, it is almost certain that football matches did take place on Christmas Day 1914. After all, it is estimated that 100,000 troops took part in the 1914 truce. The following year, though, these truces were considerably less common, after the high commands of both sides issued edicts banning them. By December 1916, the mutual enmity had grown to such a point that neither team even wanted one anymore. The British khaki and the German grey are soon gathering all mingled together. By Christmas 1914, every soldier knew that the enemy was sharing the same misery as they were. Both sides are well aware that consorting with the enemy is only one step away from treason, a crime punishable by court-martial and execution. Men on both sides go to sleep that night wondering if they will wake up the next morning to renewed fighting or a continued effort to defy the war. 
The fear of punishment is enough to get most of the soldiers back to fighting. How amazingly difficult it must have been for these people to pick up shooting again um, and with any kind of vigor try and kill people in the opposite trench that they just celebrated Christmas with. Private Archibald Stanley remembers how his officer put an end to their armistice. Well, if you're knocking around, this fella come up the next day. He said, you still got the armistice. Picked up his rifle, he shot one of those Germans dead. Seven members of the Hearts team of 1914 never returned to Scotland, and three members of the Clapton Orient team never made it back to London either. And these were mere drops in the ocean on a planet sitting under a dark, heavy cloud of an increasingly nihilistic and industrialised slaughter. And yet, for one season, the football did play on. Just three points separated the top seven in the third division at the end of the 1914-15 season, with Everton winning the title by a point from Oldham Athletic. Travel restrictions and so many men being away fighting limited the crowd for the FA Cup final at Old Trafford, where Sheffield United beat Chelsea by three goals to nil. On Good Friday 1915, Manchester United were struggling to avoid relegation from the first division, while Liverpool were in mid-table and neither challenging for honours nor facing the threat of relegation themselves, when the two teams met at Old Trafford. The match ended in a 2-0 win to United, but the match referee and others had noted a lack of commitment on the part of the Liverpool players during the game. And with rumours swirling around after the match, the FA launched an investigation. The circumstances were certainly right for it. Following the furore that had been going on all season, it was almost certain that the league would suspend operations at the end of the 1914-15 campaign, and this would at least be a huge disruption to, or at worst might end, the careers of everyone then playing in the league. They'd been told that the war would be over by Christmas, but the truth was that, by December 1914, it had barely even begun. Why not take this last extra chance to earn a few pounds? The FA's investigation found that seven players from both sides had been involved in fixing the match. Sandy Turnbull, Arthur Wally, Enoch West of Manchester United, and Jackie Sheldon, Tom Miller, Bob Purcell and Thomas Fairfowl of Liverpool. Sheldon, a former Manchester United player who had moved to Liverpool, was found to have been the group's ringleader. It was, however also found that other players had refused to get involved with it at all. One player, Manchester United's Fred Pagnum, testified against the group. Pagnum had hit a late shot against the crossbar during the match at Old Trafford. He told the inquiry he'd told them that he would score in order to ruin the bet. Other players were a little more taciturn. Billy Meredith who'd previously been banned for the entirety of the 1905-06 season for unsuccessfully attempting to bribe Aston Villa's Alex Leake, denied any knowledge of the Max fiction, but stated that he became suspicious when none of his teammates would pass the ball to him. On the 27th of December 1915, the FA handed out its verdict. 
all seven players were banned from the game for life. The FA concluded that it had been a conspiracy by the players alone. No official from either club was found guilty of wrongdoing, and neither club was fined or had points deducted. Enoch West sued the FA for libel, but lost his case. In practice, the ban had no immediate effect on the players' footballing careers. In the summer, the Football League did what it should have done months earlier and suspended operations until after the war was over. Sandy Turnbull was killed while serving in the war, but all of the other players, except West, had their bans lifted by the FA in 1919 in recognition of their service to the country. Turnbull was posthumously pardoned. When the Football League returned in 1919, four of the six players who survived the war resumed their playing careers. West had to wait until 1945 for his ban to be lifted. London came an Irishman one day As the streets are paved with gold Sure everyone was gay Singing songs of Piccadilly Strand and Leicester Square Till Paddy got excited Then he shouted to them there It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way to go It's a long way to Tipperary By the time the final whistle blew in November 1918, the UK had lost around 2% of its total population. Counting the exact number of the dead has proved beyond historians, but it's estimated to have been between 853 and 997,000 people. Countries with the sound of shells still ringing in their collective ears stopped dead still. The British economy was in ruins. From being the world's largest overseas investor, it became one of its biggest debtors, with interest payments alone forming around 40% of all government spending. Ireland, where the British Army's treatment of the 1916 Easter uprising sowed the seeds of the endgame for that country as a British territory, was gearing up for independence. Those who'd just seen loved ones killed, or who spent the last four years simply terrified of where this might end up, might well have been forgiven for wondering whether it had all been worth it in the first place. But the football had to resume, and the following August, it did. The Football League was back, for 20 years of expansion, as well as financial and political controversy. Right and gay. As the train moved out, he played 
remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, I'm a dear baby, dear from your eye. Though it's hard to part, I know, I know. I'll be bigger than death, you know, so cry. Don't die. There's a silver lining in the sky. Oh, 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 sing, cheerio, chin, chin, na, boo, to glue, goodbye. Listening to this 200% podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Find us on Facebook by searching 200%.net or on Twitter at 2WOHP. Be good to each other and roll.